0: This episode is one for the books. Not sure which book, but it's one for them. I mean, it is the first of a new format with the solo narrative as the medium, so there is that. And in honor of the new format, I guess it's as good a time as any to do something perhaps slightly out of character for the show in terms of mood and tone. This episode is... Comparatively light-hearted. This week's topic is on the opposite end of the dirty history spectrum. It's no less dirty, don't get me wrong, and it's it's not something uncharacteristic. It still fits the show's mission. But generally, a trend has come to my attention. This show is rather violent or depraved, or or perhaps both simultaneously. We mean we have trophy taking, blood sports, coliseums, torture, and cannibalism to name a few recent topics, and. I think we can extend this trend that I'm talking about to history podcasts as a genre generally. Some of the most popular and insightful history podcasts, I mean, History on Fire, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, they are concerned with the epics of history, massive battles and military trends, others on crime and punishment, but generally they are, in a way, violent. As the age-old show business adage goes, if it bleeds, it leads. However, that said, the strongest reaction in terms of outrage from some listeners and non-listeners alike come from episodes that touch on human sexuality. Which is interesting to me. If I had two episodes that I were to release simultaneously, one with a title along the lines of Decapitations and Painful Torture Executions, and another episode titled vaginas in the Middle Ages, I would almost guarantee that I would receive more hate mail and concerned contacts for the latter as opposed to the former. There is an interesting trend in America and other quote-unquote conservative nations in that there is an acceptance of ultraviolence and a renunciation of the sexual. And why is that? I mean, as our younger generation grows up, we hope they populate the world with newer generations and all in all that they do less violence as a whole. Is that perhaps the sticking point that we run into? The kind of sexuality we talk about on the show is not always of the procreative kind. And the tough, and the tough thing is, we can rarely have these conversations in a public arena to talk about what is it about sex. In fact, in talking about sex, you will find groups surrounding you on all sides, people who think you went too far, others not enough, some were offended, a few were outraged, some enjoyed it. With so many concerned people with how we talk about sex, you'd think it's the first time they're hearing about it. So this episode is a departure from the routine style, a departure in embracing violence and in avoiding interest in human sexuality. I want to talk about something different. That said, I guess, I have to give some sort of warning, I guess. If human sexuality makes you uncomfortable, this episode probably isn't for you, which I think is a ridiculous kind of warning that I have to give, considering that I deal with, you know, people's heads getting cut off and eating each other and bile and shit and vomit and whatnot. All of that said, I guess this is a... uh, This is a warning of sorts for content which some may find uncomfortable. So if that may be you, maybe try the episode out, and if it gets to a point where you're like, this is too much for me, turn it off, I'll talk to you soon with the regular dose of blood and guts. But I guess this episode is kind of illustrating that Dirty History is not just violence or depravity. In fact, things that are below standards of taste are many different kinds of human activities outside of violence. So this is a social history of an interesting activity. I don't want to call it a pastime, a rite of passage in some cultures, a reaction to some sort of stimulus in others. And in doing research for this episode, my search history is rather suspicious. And I think that goes without saying. I mean, you should see the pop-up ads right now. Things for pills, three weird tricks, experimental and totally safe surgeries out of Venezuela. Yeah, Venezuela. And I would be remiss not to mention some new magic berry from Madagascar or a new tea that is making porn stars mad the world over. I mean, there's a lot of variety, so much variety, in fact, that it almost makes you wonder why anyone ever goes through life insecure about their virility. There are so many solutions. Now, are they all quack medicine? Perhaps. And we'll get on that later. What, what is quackery and what is legitimate, if there is anything that is legitimate, but when it comes down to it, choosing where to start seems like the hardest part, no pun intended. The quantity and variety of ads and rumors and urban legends and myths and just general noise surrounding male enhancement is a testament to the relevance of the topics to people today. That being said, I'm glad to be here presenting this episode so that maybe now the People from the NSA will stop laughing at me. However, that seems to be unlikely. But this episode is on male enhancement. And I suppose it's for the ladies. I'm just kidding. I can't really say that with a straight face. I'm Thomas Thompson. And this is Dirty History. Let me level with you. I don't have all the answers to this age-old phenomena. I mean, my guess is as good as any's as to why people may pursue supplements or surgeries or medicines for male enhancement purposes. I mean, there's the stated obvious reasons, but I feel like there must be something that's underlying All of that. Which is generally what we're going to explore today. The historical practices and implications and context of mail enhancement to better understand why we do it and how we do it and how it's influenced us today and going forward. Because it's a booming market. That's something to understand going forward. For example, U.S. consumers spend upwards of $5 billion a year on mail enhancement. Let let me repeat that. US consumers spend upwards of five billion, with a B, dollars a year on mail enhancement. For the sake of comparison, that is more than the entire budget of the Red Cross. Let's rephrase that. If all of the curious and insecure Members of society diverted their funds for personal growth to other ventures, we could double the budget of the Red Cross. The same Red Cross that, and I'm quoting from their website, provides shelter, food, health, and mental health services to help families and entire communities get back on their feet. That Red Cross. Now, this is no fault of insecure and curious members of society. People are inherently self-interested. They want to better themselves, so of course they're going to spend money on doing that. I'm not saying we should all give our money to the National Red Cross. I'm just drawing a comparison. The global sexual enhancement market is a multi-billion dollar industry, generating profits greater than the gross domestic product of many small countries. And the market continues to grow, no pun intended, as more surprisingly women get in on the action and invest in various supplements and creams and gels for sexual enhancement. So the male enhancement market is now tied up with the sexual enhancement market. It's all one and the same. Male enhancement is for sexuality, not for something else. The only challenge to the market today is how to get these things more widely available how to get it out there. Because while Americans spend more on making their penises larger than they do on disaster relief, there are still conservative elements in every society. As I was alluding to earlier, there is backlash when dealing with human sexuality. And when you out and out say that we spend more than the National Red Cross on sexual enhancement, it makes some people uncomfortable. But it wasn't always like that. I don't mean in terms of Yes, there were always conservatives in society that were uncomfortable with sexuality. I shouldn't say always, but very recently and through time, there are pretty good examples of conservatives in society. But the market experiencing exponential growth because of women involved, and it linking, when I say it, I mean male enhancement linking with sexual enhancement, that was not always the case. There was a time when the market was dominated by men seeking to enlarge their prospects, so to speak. Now, perhaps it is sexual, but there was also a time when the market was not sexual in nature. It was something entirely different. And like many of the topics we have covered on the show, this one, this idea of male enhancement, has its roots in the ancient world. Specifically, surprise, surprise, in ancient Greece. In his seminal work, Poetics, Aristotle found that comedy was a combination of a form of literary poetry known as iambus and a form of ritual poetry, which basically translates to something along the lines of a phallic song, which immediately warrants a second glance, a double take, or a double earshot, or whatever people do when they don't see something but they hear something that sounds weird, so they... Or, like, what the hell was he talking about there? Phallic, of course, refers to the penis, and songs are the sounds we make that are pleasing in terms of rhythm and melody. So, bring these two together, and what were phallic songs? We can get a simple answer music referring to penises. There's a lot of that around today if we were to take that base definition, but as is always the case. With this show, we need some context to fully understand this question and answer. Now, the context takes us a little bit into um, mythology and folklore territory, but again, I think mythology is worth studying in the terms of history to understand the culture and what they uh, respect and find important. So, in ancient Greece, phallica, P-H-A-L-L-I-K-A, or phallic processions, were common features Of Dionysic celebrations. That was a lot. Let's break it down. Dionysus, to brush up on your Greek mythology, was the god of wine, winemaking, grape cultivation, fertility, ritual madness, theater, and religious ecstasy. All fun things. Dionysus had a pretty damn good roster of activities that he represented. I mean, who doesn't love wine? You have wine making and grape cultivation. You have some crafts. Fertility, that goes without saying. Ritual madness, which is kind of getting high from meditation and prayer. Theater. Gotta be entertained. And religious ecstasy. Enjoying the religious experience. I mean, if I was choosing, I'm pretty sure he would probably be a personal favorite Greek god of me of mine in the in the wide pantheon of Greek gods. I mean, as it turns out, loving wine and theater is something that can be enjoyed by more than mildly dispossessed wives. Wine and theater are fun fun combinations, really. You could bring them together. And it's all Dionysus' bag. And of course, the people loved him. He's a pretty easy-going god, considering what he represents. And these phallic processions to celebrate Dionysus were just as they sound. Penis parades, by which phalluses, I know, I know, I'm sorry. Phallus, by the way, for all of you, the uninformed is a slang term for weenie, just so you're all aware. And these were displayed not unlike your typical Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade floats. But this Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade of penises, as you might imagine, is the case for drunken fertility parades in the name of Dionysus. They were riotous. Body songs, big fake penises, almost close to something in terms of uh, Mardi Gras in the realm of holding a reputation for debauchery and insanity. Instead of flashing your breasts for beads, you are whipping out penises for respect and to honor a god. And reputation for things you'll regret in the morning must have also been uh, rife throughout the country. Now I would imagine the reputation of debauchery and you know just overall ritual madness was had to be accompanied by a reputation for things you'll regret in the morning i.e. when you mix wine and fertility together i imagine some people were displeased with the with the results of the festival you know a few months later but again that's just conjecture at this point but in this instance specifically this this Dionysic celebration these phallic processions the penis was the symbol of fertility which falls firmly into dionysic territory the processions served to please the god and provide good fortune in terms of virility and harvest and when i say that i mean i mean fertility virility harvest across the board Not just in the human sense, but in the natural sense. When I say natural, I mean in terms of nature. Plants and animals and whatnot. These parades and celebrations looked at fertility not just in the sexual sense, but in that cross-species-plant-life sense. And it was done in addition to fetishized phalluses. The parades were also characterized by verbal abuses and obscenities. And these were hurled both at the crowd and from the crowd. And these body jokes and dirty words that came from the crowd and at the crowd were the aforementioned phallic poetry of the time. So phallic poetry, phallic songs, were those things that were that characterized the front of these parades. Now, as you have one of these big fake penis parades marching through your town, you might have a few things to say. Again, there's conservative elements in the town, there's drunk people in the town coming out of, uh, you know, drinking holes and whatnot. So you have a whole mix of people, some in the grips of ritual madness and wine drunkenness and fertility fever dreams, and they are um, they're a little unruly, a little riotous, and like I said, there was this, this sense of debauchery throughout these parades, so you could imagine these things get out of hand rather easily. I mean, if you think we're wild today at Mardi Gras, flashing ourselves for beads, um, imagine what these people are doing in the name of the god Dionysus. So I know the, the term poetry sounds romantic, but when I'm talking about these phallic poems that are being yelled and talked about at the front of these parades, they were essentially sea shanties about dongs, which is the technical term for phallus. So Aristotle found that comedy had its origins in these phallic processions. So comedy is a combination of iambus poetry and this uh, phallic procession, these phallic poems. So essentially, dick jokes are as old as jokes themselves. Which is an interesting perspective to take because if we look at What makes a joke funny? It's typically those things that relate to most of us. You know, a comedian essentially stands up in front of a room and makes light or rants about that which he hates or that which he really loves or something that's generally funny. And something's funny because it's relatable. So if dick jokes are as old as jokes themselves, there must be something about penises being such-and-such or so-and-so that make them comedic to illustrate this point further here is a totally not custom made for this show quote by Werner herzog i've dwelt among the humans their entire culture is built around their penises it's funny to say they're small it's funny to say they're big i've been at parties where humans have held bottles pencils thermoses in front of themselves and called out, hey, look at me, I'm Mr. So-and-so dick. I've got such-and-such for a penis. I never saw it fail to get a laugh. Now I get it. It's from Rick and Morty, so that means, I guess, what, you have to be a genius to understand it, or so the memes say, if you read those. But generally, what this Werner Herzog uh, little monologue is saying is that the culture is built around penises, which is not entirely untrue. I mean, it's a very Freudian point to take, but there are many phallic symbols and phallic metaphors throughout our society, and let's make no mistake, these phallic processions, they were not an isolated in- incident in time or geography. The Greek formulation of the phallic procession did not just occur in ancient Greece. I'll illustrate a few, but there were many more instances of phallic processions or penis parades but they still occur today and there are many examples in the nation of japan now these i'll give out two examples from japan and both of which still occur today and have occurred through time today these penis parades are typically used to celebrate fertility relationships and safe sex practices largely again no pun intended so there's the big three Fertility, relationships, and safe sex practices, largely, broadly. And uh, fertility, again, is a very broad term, not just denoting human sexuality, but fertility and plant life and animal life and reproduction in general. Relationships and safe sex, yeah, those deal with humans. So particularly popular in Japan is the Kanamara Matsuri, where on the first Sunday of April, people gather just south of Tokyo, for the Festival of the Steel Phallus. The Festival of the Steel Phallus sounds like the most metal gathering of people, perhaps, and the most unmetal gathering of people, perhaps. It is simultaneously badass and not so badass. But at this festival, you can get phallus shaped lollipops, wear phallic masks, and marvel around the shrine of the big steel penis that is paraded through a city. Now, I, I know what you're thinking, a big steel penis, what's what's the deal? What's the backstory? I mean, in ancient Greece, they're celebrating the god Dionysus. What are they doing in Japan? So a little background, again, will clear things up. And again, this delves into the folklore a little bit more than, say, mythology or history. But generally, Japanese folklore, it, there's a story in which a sharp-toothed demon has hidden a woman's vagina and castrated no less than two suitors. The woman, desperate, sought out a local blacksmith, who, as the story goes, forged her a great phallus, a great iron or steel phallus, which shattered the demon's teeth, allowing the woman, at long last, sexual liberation. And if this took place anywhere near the 1700s or today, the disappointment that lies within that. However, I mean, this tale could be interpreted in a number of ways. It's a very simple story. A woman has a demon in her vagina. It's castrated her suitors. She gets a big steel phallus, shatters the demon's teeth. Boom. Sexual awakening, sexual liberation. However, who's doing the liberating? A man forged her a phallus by which she was able to be liberated to take on more men? Is there kind of a patriarchal side to this, or is this just talking about, all right, a woman can work by herself and gain power over her reproductive organs? Is that what it is? Is it a great allegory for will and determination of women to remove a man's power or remove a foreign power over her reproductive organs? What's what's the point? I don't know. I'm not a literary critic. This is not a literary criticism podcast. You didn't sign up for that. I just get sidetracked, okay? The story, in its multiple interpretations, was forever commemorated with the Shrine of the Steel Phallus, which is, interestingly enough, frequented by sex workers who pray for good business and protection from STDs. That makes perfect sense. The Steel Phallus Shrine is also frequented by the LGBTQ population in Japan, But once a year, people far and wide gather in the city as the great penis shrine is paraded around, and they all celebrate in solidarity, all things penis related. And I quote an eyewitness account of the of the festival, they said Other traditional highlights of the festival include penis themed songs, a parade of phallus floats, genitalia carving competitions, ow, and even special sake made to taste like semen. I'll let that sink in for a moment. Genitalia carving competitions means, you know, just wooden carvings of genitals, phallus floats, big penis parades, and whatnot, penis-themed songs, so music in general, and uh, sake to taste like semen. Sake aside, it sounds like This festival is something we saw in ancient Greece. So that tells me that there are certain unstated understandings about fertility and genitals cross-culturally. Perhaps not everywhere, we shouldn't be monolithic in our assumptions of male sexuality, but there is this certain regard in some cultures regarding the phallus. So next time you drink sake, I want you to think about dirty history... In the Kanamara Matsuri. Again, you're welcome. And as that sake conundrum simmers, again, it's kind of strange to many people, maybe not strange to the people who are there, but as a Westerner, it is strange to me. That's for sure. But I want you to know that these, uh, these phallus festivals, they get bigger. No joke or pun intended there. It's just what happens. The Konamari Matsuri celebrates fertility in terms of humanity, monogamous sexual partners conceiving and sex workers avoiding unforeseen troubles and sexual liberation for the LGBTQ community. But there's another Japanese festival, the Honen Matsuri, or Harvest Festival, that celebrates fertility in all forms with its focus on plant life and whatnot. But it's very um, it looks at human pregnancy very deeply as well. Now, from what I can tell, this is the more widely celebrated of the two in terms of geographic positioning. Whereas the Kanemaru Matsuri celebrates penises in one central location, the Harvest Festival, or Honen Matsuri, is celebrated throughout the country, but it has an epicenter in the town of Komaki. Now, the Honen Matsuri is still celebrated nationally, but there is an epicenter, like I said, in Komaki. And according to Jane Gannal's article, The Joy of Spring, in which she witnessed the festival being you know, performed happening in the town of Kamaki, she found that during the festival, townspeople drink free sake, no word yet on the taste. They indulge in special phallus-shaped sweets. They join in a parade that ushers a wooden 620-pound male member down the street. Really, it's not all unlike the Kanamara Matsuri, or the Dionysic celebrations, penis floats, fertility rituals, etc., etc. It's just bigger. Yeah, it's not a steel phallus, but it's a 620-pound wooden phallus. And if you can figure out where this episode is going, that means everything. But all in all, the Honen Matsuri is not so different, that is, it kind of has a weird climax. Alright, it's normal up and normal in terms of being similar, I suppose, if we want to phrase it like that. To the other festivals until at around four PM, the crowd is showered with rice cakes, which symbolizes fertility. The festivities conclude early and bushy eyed, and everyone in their fevered socky drunk state goes home early to get a jump start on the evening's private fertility rituals. That's Jane Gnall's quote right there. Quote, an early start on the evening's private fertility rituals, which I think is hilarious. Now again, we have two cultures here that we're talking about. We have modern Japan and ancient Greece. And when I say modern Japan, it's still happening today, the Honen Matsuri and the Kanemaru Matsuri. But they've also happened through time. So it's a persistent idea in Japan, and an idea in ancient Greece. Two wildly different cultures, both celebrating fertility and harvest in very similar ways. Now we should ask why, then, is the penis at the center of these festivals? I mean, we call that which comes from nature as coming from Mother Nature. The ocean is frequently spoken in terms of she, And often people regard nature as feminine. Mother Earth. The great oceans, or she's, the lakes, or she's. Feminine pronouns are often given to things that come from nature, so why then is fertility and harvest considered a phallic pursuit? Now, could it be something as simple as the patriarchal setup of the culture in which these parades and celebrations were located? that, That could be one Facet of the grander answer, but I, I think though I don't think there's one simple, concise answer. Now the discussion of phallic-themed celebrations—it's important and it's great for setting up this talk, but it comes just short in getting to the center of our question today. Now these festivals generally preface sex, as I alluded to at the end of the Kanamara and Honen Matsuri, and maybe that is the angle we should try to take and understand why some cultures revere the penis and others the vagina, and why there is a concern over not stacking up when the chips are down and the pants are off. So, what is it? Is it a matter of attraction? Again, to start broaching that question, we go to the ancient world with the Assyrians, who were very naively literal in their ideas of attraction. (laughs) I I laugh every single time I read this story. It's, It's ridiculous in terms that it makes sense in a very, very strange and base way. Men would sprinkle powdered lodestone onto their member in the hopes of literally... And when I say literally, I don't mean literally in how people use it today. You know, they say literally when they mean figuratively. Like, when someone says, I literally melted. You didn't literally melt, you figuratively melted, but... I'm saying here now, men would sprinkle powdered lodestone onto their members in the hopes of literally attracting women who supposedly sprinkled iron fillings on their genitals. So yes, they used principles of actual magnetism as a substitute for sexual magnetism. That would be like if Marvin Gaye sang about polarity Instead of getting it on. Marvin Gaye singing about the North and South Poles. As opposed to getting the right lights real low. You know? Sexual healing is just about magnetism. It's safe to say the Assyrians were kind of off there. I also think it's safe to say that there weren't many happy wedding nights when they... Broke out the iron and lodestone. In fact, I would think it's downright painful. So, is the idea of male enhancement an idea of attraction? Is it an idea of bettering your odds to find a suitable mate? Or is it something more insular? Perhaps it has something to do with masculinity or machismo. And I think a good way to, again, broach that question is to go to Papua New Guinea. Where there are reports of tribes in which warriors in battle, when they come across the dead body of an elder, they are to extract the elder's essence through ways that I will um, let you imagine. Um, Think about the sake from the Kanemaru Matsuri. That's the only hint I'm going to give you. I don't want to get too graphic yet. The younger boys are to extract the essence of the warrior, the seed of the warrior from the fallen elder warriors in order to become proper... proper fighters in their tribe, proper warriors in their tribe. There was also consuming of male members in some of these tribes. But this isn't a widespread phenomenon. These are some isolated, anecdotal incidents of boys retrieving the essence, the seed from older soldiers that are dying in battle. And oftentimes... It was customary in Papua New Guinea for the two tribes that are warring their leaders were to go into battle naked and with an erection. And the erection before battle was to strike fear in the heart of the opposing side. That The general was somehow taking pleasure or was somehow asserting his dominance by being erect going into battle. So there's this idea that well at that point it's not fertility. It's not attracting a mate. It's a symbol of masculinity, machismo, power. So is that what it is? Is male enhancement a crest question of pride and power? For example, in 2013 in Vietnam, many Vietnamese men attempted self penis enlargement. They did this by injecting liquid silicone into their penises, and subsequently suffered from complications including infections, necrosis, tumors, swelling, deformities, sexual dysfunction, and many were hospitalized. Just for the sake of painting that picture in your head, necrosis is the death of body tissue. It occurs when too little blood flows to the tissue. This could be from a multitude of causes. Necrosis cannot be reversed. When large areas of tissue die to a lack of blood supply, the condition is called gangrene. So essentially, necrosis is the prerequisite for gangrene. And listening to this episode, I'm sure most of you have a familiarity with gangrene. If you don't, you sure as hell will on our next episode, which we're going to talk a lot about gangrene. But Necrosis is that building block towards gangrene. And in 2013, there were many reported cases of men injecting liquid silicone into their penises and then suffering from necrosis of the penis. Cell death, tissue death of the penis. Not enough blood getting to the tissues, and they would die. And rot. Now, shit, I realized I went a little too far there, and I kind of betrayed the. Hey, don't worry about getting graphic today. Uh, Things are messy. The past is a messy place. What are you going to do? <laughs> you guys act like I plan these episodes ahead of time or something. But what is it that would make you go that far? To unwittingly infect yourself or give yourself necrosis or tumors or swelling or deformities or dysfunction? Now, if it's for the sake of fertility, for the sake of sexual performance, Giving yourself a deformity for sexual dysfunction is, you lost, you did the opposite of what you set out to do. So what is it? Is it something else? Is it again pride and masculinity or power or machismo? We have to take a look at many different angles to try and figure that out, and I don't think there's one answer. I mean, could it be a thought that makes you do it? Your mind? I mean thoughts are fleeting, but I think I think it's more along the lines of a base emotion, something powerful and simple that would make you look at penis lengthening pills or stretch stretch apparatuses or vacuum pumps or silicone injections or lengthening and thickening operations. Now is it is it a general fear of not sizing up because In fact, studies have shown that penile length is normal in most men seeking male enhancement procedures, so we have to ask when this concern starts. I was reading a fantastic article about this, and the author found that until about 20 years ago, penis size, either non-erected or erected, was not mentioned, discussed, or even defined in serious books on human anatomy. That said... I would be remiss not to note that the penis is a scrutinized part of society today. And in fact, it has been perhaps subconsciously through time, and it's serving as a symbol of fertility. So that quote, until 20 years ago, penis size was not mentioned or discussed or defined in serious human anatomy books. Now, okay, in serious human anatomy books, I'll give the author that. But I think... The idea of the penis has been discussed through time in various cultures longer than 20 years ago. Hell goes all the way back to ancient Greece. Now perhaps there was no shame involved, no disappointment, no fear, no anxiety. that could be the case. I can't speak for that on every individual level and I can't make a bold claim that it was never happening when it may well have been happening on a very individual level. Impotence has led to many kinds of uh, these personality types that are out for something, you know, to prove themselves. There's the idea of, oh, he's compensating. That's a very true idea. So therefore, accepting that this quote perhaps makes generalizations, we should back the statement up by looking at historical examples of male fertility remedies. If we look at The historical examples, we can show that this is something that has happened medically through time. And we can figure out how and why perhaps people do this. Now, by the end of the episode, I probably won't give you an answer. Um, That's not the job of the show. It's not my job. I will lay out the facts for you and you can figure out for yourself why people do it. And again, I would love for you to reach out in the comments or whatever and talk about it. But a brief aside, I don't lift... Many weights. But I do know this. When working out, you generally eat muscle to grow muscle. Red meats and whatnot. Or if you're Joe Rogan, you eat a lot of veal. Not veal. Ah, God, uh, elk. You eat a lot of elk. Venison. Ergo, perhaps the same role applies. Eat dick to grow dick. Using that Elementary and perhaps very oversimplified framework, I explored this idea. Eating muscle to grow muscle, penis for penis, and the hunch paid off. There was a goldmine of historical examples of this. Hippocrates recommended consuming deer penis to resolve sexual difficulties. Hmm, That's interesting. Does it continue from there? I mean, the main takeaway from this whole sex section is that there are many myths and tall tales about various herbal remedies and aphrodisiacs that have desirable effects, and some are used today, and some are exaggerated, some stories are nearly completely missing their mark, but the idea is that for as long as there has been this idea of male enhancement or sexual enhancement or any kind of... Performance enhancement in that department, there has been quack medicine to accompany it. And for as long as there's been quack medicine, there's been quack medicine targeting penises. Now there is, to refer back to the Hippocrates quote, the Hippocrates idea of recommending deer penis to resolve sexual difficulties, there's a common trend in um, some Korean medicinal marketplaces to... Consume deer penis liquor. It is a rice wine made with deer penis and other forms of spirits. And sometimes it's uh, mixed with a tonic and drank and is supposedly to have health benefits. I'm not one to say whether or not they do. I've never tried deer penis liquor, thankfully. But if any of you know, I feel free to reach out and I'll put some sort of disclaimer on the next episode and we can talk about it from there. But referring to that near-completely-missing-the-mark category is that idea of the rhino horns. Rhino horns are poached and they are used in a tonic in hopes of size enhancement. So a couple of things. First, rhinos are poached for the illicit trade of their Horns. In South Africa, for example, 1,000 rhinos were killed in 2016 alone. In fact, I found an article that describes a series of police raids on poaching houses around the city of Hanoi, Vietnam, where police seized, quote, two frozen tiger cubs, four lion pelts, and nearly 80 pounds of rhino horns. So even today, rhino horns are a part of a larger market of poaching, we must ask, like we have been asking all of this episode and throughout this entire show from episode one until now, what for? Why? Is this poaching uptick a result of penises, or is the answer like most things in history when regarding penises? Probably, but not directly. Let me explain. What I mean is, I'm working with a general framework and theory that penises have dictated many portions of history. Maybe not directly, but indirectly. And I think that may be the case here. So a study was ran in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City in 2013 to discover why people buy rhino horn. And the answers varied, but there were four main categories beyond the standard deviation. There were these four main categories for why people buy rhino horn that just popped up time and time again. The first was those who believe rhino horn can cure cancer, mothers who use it to treat feverish children, those who view it as a health and hangover curing tonic, and finally, a newer class who seem to be driving demand are young career upstarts, typically in the business and finance sector, who give rhino horns as a gift for superiors so again rhino horn may at one time related to penises but today not directly in terms of how we have been discussing it so while it may seem like a dead end here it's not it's about power it's about asserting some sort of dominance that's what the rhino horn is it relates to the masculine it relates to things that relate to penises So this whole rhino horn idea, buying and poaching rhino horn, relates to themes similar to themes we've covered throughout Male Enhancement. Now again, this may seem like a dead end for our purposes, but the stories that come out of the rhino horn market in Vietnam are no less interesting, and since we're on the topic I might as well bring it up. Reports of ground up horn, rhino horn, mixed with alcohol, supposedly in Viewing the drink with certain unstated properties. Again, this could be one of those four that we covered, or male enhancement. And perhaps this relates to the folktales and urban legends, but generally it's believed that you drink these tonics and you have some sort of penis growth. But I can't substantiate those claims completely. Some stories that I can substantiate, however, are those about rhino horn parties where they... um presented them to their bosses or whatever, they being career-minded business upstarts, and people are grinding it up and snorting it like cocaine. More than anything, rhino horn and its usage seems to be an illusory uh, fad. And that is despite the claim that rhino horn was used in traditional Vietnamese medicine. And that's a claim that Michelle Thompson, a history professor at Southern Connecticut State University and the author of Vietnamese Medicine A Social History Refutes. She states in an interview that rhino horn quote, never played an important part in traditional medicine. The use of it is essentially a fad. And I think that proves to be true. There's no psychoactive effects to snorting rhino horn at least not that I have found in my research. So, the horn came out to be a Street myth, with no scientific or historical context to suggest that it was a method of male enhancement. So, what are some of the big ones that we can point out to explore? A common one you're going to see online if you were to do research is something called Horny Goatweed, which, opposed to having an ironic name that kind of fits the theme, is typically listed as one of those natural male enhancement remedies, you know, quote-unquote natural, along with things like yohimbine, maca, and ginkgo bilboa. But the scholarship surrounding these substances and supplements all point to the same conclusion. The multi-billion male enhancement market is rife with modern quackery not unlike medicinal and pharmaceutical ads of old. You know, the quotes, they're all over the place. Weird tricks to get bigger. Stop worrying today and the like of those. They seem to be the modern-day equivalents to old quack medicine ads that boasted outrageous claims. For example, there was one for this... Here it is. I'll just read it, and we'll talk about it in a moment. Allen's Cocaine Tablets. For hay fever and throat troubles, that also cures nervousness, headaches, and sleeplessness. 50 cents a box, and you can order by mail. Leave it to 1890 to be the year that you can buy cocaine mail order, and hope that it's going to treat your twitchiness and sleeplessness. So yes, Allen's cocaine tablets were a real thing, and yes, buying those magic pills that will make you bigger probably won't, And just like buying cocaine tablets probably won't make you any less tired. It's quack medicine that's alive and well today on the fringes of legitimate medicine. It's like eating placenta for postpartum strength. There's no correlation. Quackery is alive and well. And that is at the heart of Of this male enhancement episode. It's all a... As I've learned in Wolf of Wall Street. It's all a fugazi. A fugazi. It's a woozy. It's a wazi. It's not there. It just isn't a thing. Because surgery is thus far the only proven scientific method for penile enlargement. The rest are chasing something illusory. Chasing something you can just not obtain. Now... The surgical techniques of penis enlargement have their origin in something more. You would find that in um, Harold Gillies. He is widely considered the father of plastic surgery. And when I say Harold Gillies is the father of plastic surgery, I'm not talking 90210 or whatever that stuff is. I'm not talking a Beverly Hills plastic surgeon. I am talking that he helped pave the way for facial reconstruction during the months and years after World War I. There's one guy he worked on named John Glubb. John Glubb was hit by a shell fragment in August 1917. He described the event saying, quote, The floodgates in my neck seemed to burst, and the blood poured out in torrents. I could feel something lying loosely in my left cheek, as though I had a chicken bone in my mouth. It was in reality half my jaw which had been broken off teeth and all and was floating about in my mouth these men in world war one saw shells and shrapnel and explosions that caused head and facial wounds that were twisted and ragged and just generally macabre in every sense of the word and they were brutal And what were these men to do once they got back home? They were deformed. They might have been viewed as monsters. I mean, we all saw The Elephant Man by David Lynch. I mean, these things were not to be taken lightly. In a world when plastic surgery isn't a thing and facial reconstruction isn't a thing and skin grafts really aren't a thing, being deformed could have real-world implications. When you return home, how are you going to get a job when half of your face is destroyed? That's where Harold Gillies comes in, post-World War One, He begins these brilliant operations on reconstructing faces and taking skin grafts and allowing these people to have a second chance with these prosthetics and with these repaired jaws and repaired faces. And he did this throughout World War One and after World War One. I. I mean, he um, worked in the Queen's Hospital in June 1917, and the unit provided 1,000 beds. They developed techniques for plastic surgery, over 11,000 operations, over 5,000 men with facial in- in- injuries from gunshot wounds. There was a lot of practice, a lot of practice. And it wasn't just facial reconstruction. In fact, Gillies was on the cutting edge of sexual reassignment surgeries. In 1946, Gillies and his colleague carried out the first sexual reassignment surgery from female to male. And then in 1951, he and a colleague carried out one of the first modern sexual reassignment surgeries from male to female, which became the standard way of doing things for like 40 years. So much of what we know, and what modern surgery knows about how to operate on penises for surgical enlargement or surgical enhancement comes from many of the Techniques Gillies developed post-World War I and post-World War II during his private practice. And I, would going to, I was going to look into Gillies' life. It's a very interesting story, but I'm not interested in one single person. I'm interested in trends. In surgery, it seems to be the proven trend for penile enlargement, and it seems to have its origin in Gillies. Now, I think I'll touch on Gillies at one point later down the road. He's an interesting character. Left his mark on surgery, that's to be sure. So, again, I don't think I have answers for you. I gave you some facts. This might be a double-listen episode, since you have that off week. Take a moment, listen back, gather your thoughts, and comment below on the video or comment below on the podcast and reach out to me if you want. Let's have a discussion as to why you think these things occur. I think a big part of this podcast is the post-listening discussion. We have a Facebook group, the Dirty History, Dirty Talk group. If you're interested in kind of discussions about the show, please get in on that. All of that said, I think we could end somewhat out of character here. And I'll leave you without any context or without any explanation a quote. I think you'll get it. Theodore Roosevelt once said, Speak softly and carry a big stick. I wonder what kind of stick he was talking about. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this has been Dirty History. And if you like what you heard here, you can get everything dirty and everything history on our website, dirtyhistorypod.com. To all of you who have donated on Patreon so far, we really appreciate it. To anyone who is interested, head over to patreon.com slash dirtyhistory. It's a crowdfunding platform, which is really going to allow us to keep the lights on at the show. The more I don't have to pay to do this show, anything to keep the lights on, it really helps, and we really appreciate it at the show. You could follow us on social media to stay up to date on. I post a lot of historical images and a lot of analysis, more than just the show on our Instagram at Dirty History Pod you can find us at Dirty History Podcast on uh, Facebook and Pod Dirty on Twitter we also have a Tumblr I don't know what Tumblr does but everything gets reposted there so there's that if you prefer Tumblr and uh, the show is brought to you by our in-house renaissance man Woodrow Cower. he provides the art direction producing writing such and such like I said he's the in-house renaissance man does a little bit of everything you can check us out on Patreon again. Patreon.com slash dirty history. Trying to think what else I need to add. I think that's about it. Patreon, website, social medias. Woodrow Cower produces the show. He also writes. He's the Renaissance Man. Thank you all so much for listening and coming along on this journey. It's been a, my pleasure to work with all of you. I hope you enjoy this new format. Please. DM me, email me, get on the contact list, get on the email list. Let's discuss the show. Just tell me if you like the new format. Tell me if you want me to go screw myself. If you don't like the new format, get out of town, go back to 30 minutes. What are you doing? Or if you want to talk about the topics. I'm happy to hear it. Anyway, we have some great new guests lined up for the show. I'm excited to do these interviews. I'm excited to do these discussions. I think you will be excited to hear them. And I have some fantastic new content lined up. Some really cool episodes coming up. So that said, thank you so much for wanting to learn That's What You Shouldn't. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this has been Dirty History. I'll talk to you soon.